You are listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. This is our Advent series, Wrapped in Flesh. For those who don't know me, uh, my name is Nick Wirens. I serve as the associate pastor here at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. And we're glad that you would join us today on this Sunday, uh, the final Sunday of the Advent season, as we continue to look forward to the coming of Christ Um, If this is your first time joining us here in person or online, um, throughout the Advent season, we've been walking through a sermon series entitled Wrapped in Flesh, looking largely at one of the most beautiful and mind-blowing verses in all of Scripture, John 1.14, that says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we've been walking through the the prologue or the introduction of uh, the Gospel of John, looking at verses, verses 1 through 18. It's some of the most theologically rich texts in all of Scripture. So today, today, the text that we just read and we're going to be looking at, we're um, going to be looking at some of the same themes that we've already seen, but we're going to be coming at it from a little bit of a different perspective and an angle as John continues to unpack who this Jesus is. Because we look at it from a different lens in a way, it brings new application to us as we study God's Word this morning. So if you got your Bibles, I do invite you to open them with me. There's some in the pew. Um, if you need to utilize your, your phone, you can do that. Put it on Do Not Disturb so it's not distracting. But I encourage you to open your word and engage. This is our book as a people of God. It's not like me and Pastor James are these, have these special knowledge of, of the Scriptures, right? This is our book as a people of God. So the very words that you see on the page, you can engage with yourselves. So what we're going to do this morning, we're, we're going to look at the text, kind of unpack so we can understand what John is saying, and then we're going to turn and apply it to our everyday lives. So let's look at verse 15 together. It starts off, it says, John testified concerning him, Jesus. So this John here is, is referenced, as we've seen before, to John the Baptist. It's not the Apostle John, who's writing this book, so that can be a little bit confusing, but it's John the Baptist. He was the forerunner to Jesus. He was the one that the Old Testament prophesied about, uh, spoke of as one to come. We see this in Isaiah 40, verse 3, talking about John the Baptist. We find out later in the New Testament, it says, "...a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert." So this is who it's talking about, John the Baptist. He was the one that paved the way for Jesus to come. So we see a lot just in this small line of scripture that John testified concerning him. There's two big things we see. First is that John testified about Jesus. He testified that Jesus is fully God and fully man. First, we see that he testified that he's fully man. This is vital to understand Throughout the scripture, we see John the Baptist literally saying, I I saw the Messiah with my very own eyes. I saw the holy God become man. We see John uh, John the Baptist is the very one that baptized Jesus. In Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17, we read, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John the Baptist at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him saying, I, John, need to be baptized by you, Jesus. And yet you, Jesus, come to me. Jesus answered him. He says, allow it for now. Let it happen because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill what the scriptures have called us to. Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. 
The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So when we see in our text today in verse 15 that it says, John testified concerning him. John is testifying that God became man. He's saying, I, I literally, I felt the weight of his body as I dunked him into the water. I lifted him up. I heard his voice speak to me. I smelt Jesus' ascent, uh, his odes, if you will. I, I felt this physical human. This man is very man, is what John the Baptist is testifying to. But he's also fully God. Continuing on in verse 15, if you look there with me, it says, John testified concerning him and exclaimed, and this is where we see an understanding that, that Jesus is fully God. It says, this was the one whom I said, the one coming after me, Jesus, ranks ahead of me because he, Jesus, existed before me. Now, this phrase, it's, it's interesting here. The writer is actually a little bit ambiguous. So there, there's two possible meanings to it, and I would argue that it's not either or, but both and, right? It's, it's a yes. If somebody asks you if you want bacon or sausage, the answer is yes, right? It's not one or the other, right? So this is a, a yes no matter what. It's a both and. The first possibility, again, holding both of these together, is that John's talking about uh, time, like a, it's a temporal priority that we know from scriptures that John the Baptist was actually born about six months before Jesus. So how, how could somebody who was born after you physically in time be ahead of you? Well, if you remember from, from John 1, 1 through 3, John the Baptist is highlighting Jesus' pre-existence. He's saying he, he wasn't created like us. He's different. He is fully God. And as someone who is fully God, he was not uh, after me in a temporal sense, right? This is what um, the apostle John says in verses one through three of the scripture that we, or the, the text we've been walking through. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Jesus was preexistent. John the Baptist is saying he was before me. We see this again in Colossians 1.17. Jesus is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So John the Baptist is saying, yeah, my, my literal birthday might have been six months before Jesus, but he existed before me. Because he existed eternally with the Father. This is so important for us to, to see and to understand. So the first possibility is temporal or time priority. The second is John the Baptist is saying that this man has absolute uh, supremacy over me. Now, in this culture, it's important to understand um, that time or experience, if we say, in a field granted somebody honor. And the longer you were in a field, if you will, um, no pun intended with John the Baptist, but the longer you were in a field, the more experience you had and the more honor you deserved. So at this time, John the Baptist, uh, when Jesus comes on the scene, had probably been doing ministry for about three years. And this isn't unlike our culture, right? Like we, we don't want some, uh, somebody who's inexperienced to fix our air conditioning, 
or we don't want the medical resident to do our surgery, right? We, we desire expertise and experience. And what John the Baptist is saying to these people as he testifies concerning Jesus is he's saying, yeah, I've been on the scene for three years doing ministry with you guys, but my ministry is pointing to this guy right here. Even though I preceded him in time, he precedes me in all things. He is above me. That's why John the Baptist says in Matthew 3, 11, Jesus is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He says, I can't even untie his sneakers because that's how important he is and how much more important he is than I. John the Baptist was saying this, testifying about this, because he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew that Jesus was the long-awaited king. And he knows and shows that Jesus is fully man and fully God. So John is fulfilling the mission that God has called him to, to point people, to testify and point people to look at Jesus, the one true king. So moving along in our passage, we we see verse 16. It says, Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his, Jesus, fullness. We have received grace upon grace from his fullness. Now remember that Jesus Christ has all of God's being in human flesh. It's not like there's a dash of God in the Messiah casserole. It's not a hint of of, of, uh, of Godness in uh, the, the Savior latte, right? It's fully God and fully man in the person of Jesus. We see that all of God's fullness is in Jesus. In Colossians 1.19, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus. Again, in Colossians 2.9, it says, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. So we've received grace upon grace out of that fullness, out of that overflow of the God-man, Jesus. But what does it mean, grace upon grace? What does that mean? I think most people read this and, and see it as God heaping just gobs and gobs of grace. It's just a constant streaming fountain bubbling over upon us, which that is true of God, right? We see that in Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. Paul tells us, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us. Some translations say that he lavished upon us with all wisdom and understanding. So it is true that gobs and gobs of grace come out of Jesus in the experience of his cross. He richly blesses us over and over again. But I think in this context, John is actually trying to teach us something a little bit different. Why do I say that? If you look in the context of the verse, he ties verse 16, that grace upon grace comes to us in Jesus, to verse 17. He says, for conjunction, if you're an English teacher, right, it conjoins to... Um, fragments, a conjunction here, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So as we read verse 16, grace upon grace, in light of verse 17, it should probably be read that we have all received new grace on top of old grace, or we have received new grace in replacement of old grace, 
Not old being bad or um, stale, not like replacing an old air filter, right? It's, it's still grace. It's just a new iteration of it. Now, it's interesting here when we get to this and, and we think, wait, wait, wait. So, so the Apostle John is saying that the law was grace and that the gospel that comes through Jesus is grace too. We, we, we get a little bit of, of, a, of a stop, right? Because oftentimes we in our Protestant tradition see the law as wholly bad. I think that comes from a little bit of a misunderstanding from Scripture, specifically from Paul, because we, we read Paul and he says things like the law leads to death. And we're like, well, surely that's, that's bad, right? That makes the law bad. But we forget that Paul says in Romans 7, 12, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. So like the apostle, the apostle John, who is saying that the old law is still grace, Paul says that the law is good and holy only if it's in the right context, if it's in the right place. The problem is that we, as a human race, don't hold the law in the rightful place. What's important about this passage that we see here is that it shows that the law was actually an evidence of God's grace. Y'all hear that? The law was an evidence of God's grace working amongst his people. But it's not the climax of his grace. It's not the peak of his grace. Here's what uh, New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner says about this passage. He says, John doesn't deny that there is grace and truth in the law. The grace in Christ, the new grace, replaces the old grace that is in the law. It is acknowledged then that there is grace in the law, but the grace found in Christ is superior. Grace and truth exist in the law, but they reach their climax, their purest expression in Christ. So we've received the perfect balance of grace and truth not in the law that was given through Moses, but in the grace and truth that came through Christ. New grace has replaced old grace in the person of Christ Jesus. So this is a short passage, right? But there's so much there. We could plumb the depths of this for a very long time because the prologue to John's gospel is so rich. But as we apply this text to our lives, there's, there's two applications that I want to call us to that we as a people need to embody. The first encouragement that I have for you is to testify, like John, about the king of Christmas. To testify about the king of Christmas. One of the things that we see John the Baptist do is testify. He points to him. That was his whole mission. He could have stopped everyone and say, oh man, this this applause, this feels really nice. Like all these people coming around and being my disciples. But no, he had a mission. He knew he had a purpose to fulfill, and that was to point, to testify to Jesus Christ. Not only is this our joy as Christians, but it's our very task that Jesus calls us to. If you remember in Matthew 28, he says to his disciples, and by extension to us, go therefore and make disciples, teach people, testify about me. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
And the apostle Peter, the rock of the church, he talks about this as well. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy and always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Isn't it crazy that one time a year, cultures all over the world celebrate our holiday? Now, you could say that Christmas has evolved or maybe devolved, if you will, right? And I would say probably so, right? So in the cultural celebration of it, it's different than what we are trying to do. But still, once a year, everybody looks to our holiday. They look to our, this is our thing, like, this is ours. This is our celebration, Once a year, we pretty much get a hall pass to talk about the work of Jesus. It's like the get out of jail free card. Like we get to testify to Jesus when the whole world or much of the world celebrates our holiday. Now, when we talk about evangelism or or testifying, sharing the good news of the gospel, for a lot of us, it it might bring up fear and trepidation. But again, I I think part of that is just because we've overcomplicated it, right? Peter, yeah, he does say, have a defense for uh, for the hope you have, but he doesn't say, like, write a a theological treatise over the the apologetics of of Jesus Christ and his divinity, right? He just says, share about, be ready to share about the hope that you have. What's our hope is that we have a, a king that's coming back. As you think about this, this Christmas season, you, you've got four strong days left, five strong days, right? As you think about it, there's just, there's three simple things that I just want to encourage you to think about, okay? Cut through all of the like, um, I have to share a track with somebody or if I don't present the entire uh, biblical redemptive historical framework to somebody, I haven't shared the gospel. No, cut through all of that. Here, here are some ways that you can think about and be prepared to share about the hope that you have in Jesus. The first, here's an easy one. Invite folks to church. Study after study has talked about how a majority, like 60% of non-Christians that get surveyed say they would respond yes if somebody invited them to come to church on Christmas. There's still some cultural longings in there to have the, the to understand like, why, why am I doing all this? Like, why am I frantically scrambling, scrambling around in my hot sweater to pick up a bunch of gifts at the mall? Like, what is this even for, right? There's deeper longings that people have. So invite, invite folks to church. Some of them probably grew up doing that for decades, and now they haven't darkened the doors of a church since they left home, Right? Now, I want to caution, right? We, we can't conflate inviting people to church to evangelism, right? Okay? They're, 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 like, the job is not for everyone to, like, pack the house and then me and Pastor James do all the cool ministry stuff, right? That's, that's a consumeristic view of the church, right? That also can say that this is the only place ministry happens, which is not true, right? You can share the gospel across the cube uh, in your office, or uh, probably Zoom calls are more appropriate now, you, but 
You can share the gospel anywhere, okay? Ministry doesn't have to happen right here in these four walls. So we need to be cautious. But the hope is that as you say, hey, neighbor Joe, do you want to come to Christmas Eve service with me? Yeah, I'd love to do that. Then you leave and Joe says, hey, I I noticed you guys talk a lot about Jesus. Like, can you tell me what that's about? Like, why do you care so much about Jesus? What, what, is it, what does it mean for Jesus to have died on the cross? Like, isn't, like, it's a little bloody and violent. Like, what does that mean? The hope is that this would maybe open some doors for you as the church, like it says in Ephesians 4, to be equipped to do the work of ministry. So like Peter says, share the hope that you have in the gospel. If you want to uh, practice this right now, okay, we have invite cards in the back, in the front. We're also, after church, if you want to join us, we're going to go to our neighbors, that, like our, our physical church neighbors, and give them a Christmas gift and invite them to come join us on Christmas Eve. So that here's like practical, tangible things that you can do to, to participate in this. So you can invite folks to church. You can share the gospel in your home, right? If you're here today and you have children... They may not be Christians yet. (laughs) Sharing the gospel with them is your duty as a parent, but also an opportunity. Actively think, like, are the traditions we have as a family, do they shape and form my children to understand why we do all this? Like, do my children understand the incarnation? Am I pointing them to the incarnation of Christ every year? If not, no guilt and condemnation to you, that's, that's okay, but I would encourage you to think about that. How can our traditions, how can the things that we do in this season point my children to the gospel? So invite folks here on Christmas Eve, share the gospel in your homes with your children. And then lastly, if you're comfortable with it, and this will look different for everybody, invite people in to your home. One of the things about Inviting people into your house is it's your house. Like, you can do what you want, right? (laughs) I will be sensitive to you. Like, if you're a vegetarian, I'll make you a vegetarian dish. But for the most part, like, if you come to my house, we're going to pray before our meal. We're going to thank God for what he's done. In the gospel season, like, or in the Christmas season, maybe there's things that we do that are different than the cultural understanding of Christmas. One of the, the things that... um. For, uh, my wife and I, we're, we're Louisville transplants, right? We, we've lived here for eight years now. We don't have family closer than seven hours. <laughs> so we travel for Christmas, right? So it's like, we don't have traditions. Our tradition is to get on an airplane at 6 a.m. and then go to someone else's traditions. This year this is our first year that family is coming to us. This is also the first year that my son has like, any inkling of what's going on, that he can actually start to understand that something big is coming, right? As the tree goes up and the presents start to wrap around, he understands. He's like, something's happening. So it's forced me as a, as a dad and as a son to my family to think, are the things that we're going to do over the next five days, really all over the Advent season, are they going to point my son towards the incarnation of Christ? Are they going to show my son what it means that the God of the universe became a baby and was crowned king 
as a zero-year-old, <laughs> are my traditions going to point him to that, to understanding that? Back to inviting people into your home. I- I'm thinking like, my family is coming. They're going to do my traditions now, right? So are my traditions, are the things that I do around this holiday season, are they going to point my family to Christ? Is my family going to see, oh, this, this is what this means? I encourage you to think through these things, right? You, you don't have to have a family to invite people into your home and have Christmas traditions that point to the incarnation, to the gospel. You can do that with your roommates. You can do that with your neighbor who maybe is alone this holiday. You can do that with fellow church members who who perhaps don't have family around. We have to actively think, how, how can I invite others in, but invite them into looking at the incarnation with us, to understanding the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So first, y'all, we got to testify about the King of Christmas. The second thing that we have to do that we can apply from this text is that we have to keep the King with the kingdom. We have to keep the King with the kingdom. So what's interesting in verses uh, 16 and 17, right? We see grace upon grace, and then we see the the Apostle John use two words. He says, grace was given through Moses, but grace grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Those are two different verbs, and that's not an accident, all right? Here's what one uh, New Testament scholar says about this passage and why he thinks John is using these different words. He says, in Judaism, so the religion of Jesus's day, the law became an end in itself, something that could be separated, divorced, torn apart from Moses through whom it was given. And then he says this, the grace and truth which came by Jesus Christ can never be dissociated from himself. When we think about the issues with the law in the New Testament, I think this is what we're thinking about. When Paul talks about the law leading to death, it's when the law has become divorced from the law giver. It's when the law becomes something that we have made And we have edited into our own law. If you look at uh, Jesus, when he's interacting throughout uh, the gospel of John, anytime he talks, or most times, excuse me, most times when he talks about the law, he's talking to religious leaders and he says, your law. (laughs) He doesn't say God's law. He says, your law. This is what he says in John 8, 17. He says, even in your law, It is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. He uses this word, your, intentionally because he's saying the law that you guys are following is not the law that that was given through Moses. They have divorced the law from the law giver. The fruit of the law had been severed from the root of the law. What the law had become became divorced from the intent of it. Many scholars are are beginning to to look at Western society and argue that we have entered, or in some some areas are still entering into a post-Christian culture. 
One pastor who, who's talked about this a lot, actually, over the past couple of years, his name's Mark Sayers. Uh, he says that this post-Christian culture stands um, opposed to Christianity, even though it is built upon Christian philosophical assumptions. Our culture wants the values that Jesus spoke of and taught on, equality, forgiveness, justice, mercy, love. It wants those things, but refuses to acknowledge the authority of the king who gave those commandments. Here's what Mark Sayers says. He says, post-Christianity is ultimately the project of the West, read Western society, to move beyond Christianity whilst feasting upon its fruits. Thus, it constantly offers us as Christians, as the church, options and off-ramps in which we seemingly have what we enjoy about faith, but without the sacrifices and commitments. He says, we're offered the mirage that we can have community without commitment, faith without discipleship, the kingdom without the king. And he says, our faith doesn't disappear with a bang, but with a whimper. The culture wants the kingdom without the king. Sayers, he's not the only one who notes this. In his book, Dominion, secular historian Tom Holland, he pulls on one of these strands, one of these values, and he looks at the modern cultural value of equal dignity to all human beings. And he talks about how that is not just something we stumbled upon as human, humanity progresses. Here's what he says. Remind you, he, he's not a, a, a Christian, or at least a public knowledge. But nonetheless, the point rings true. He says that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely self-evident a truth. A Roman in Jesus' day would have laughed at it. To campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption that everyone possessed inherent worth. Here's what he says. This is what our culture is longing for, the kingdom without the king. It's misunderstanding. He says the origins of this principle, as Nietzsche had so contemptuously pointed out, lay not in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. Your average non-Christian would affirm equal dignity probably amongst all people. (laughs) But most would not recognize or would staunchly oppose the idea that that was a biblical value. Our culture, as it moves towards a post-Christianity, wants the kingdom without the king, just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day wanted the law, the feel-goodness of obeying what they had made up. They wanted that divorced from the lawgiver. What what John is telling us as, as we look at this, using these subtle phrases, he's telling us that the truth cannot be pulled apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. He says, all his fullness brings both grace and truth. It's a package deal. It's not either or. We need to be careful in the church not to follow the culture in divorcing the perks of the kingdom from the works of the king. 
There is no kingdom without the king. Look, as we testify about the king of Christmas, we need to be testifying about the king of the kingdom. It's grace and truth in Christ. They came through Christ. They're a part of his essence. So any attempts to divorce the benefits of the kingdom from Jesus' rule and reign as king, it's an impossibility. It's anarchy. Look, if you're here today or you're, you're joining us online and you're not a Christ follower, first, I just encourage you to consider the things that you value, whether that be love or peace or kindness or justice or forgiveness or freedom, whatever it may be that deep at your core you may value, and ask the question, where do these come from? Is it because humanity has progressed so well, like we're doing such a good job that we just stumbled upon these things? How how about like uh, the the Uyghur Muslims being uh, in internment camps in in the Chinese government? Or or Germany chiming in and saying, well, that's not a red line issue for us. That's not too big of a deal to upset this economic agreement that we're pursuing. Like, human progress is is not a thing, y'all. The kingdom without the king is an impossibility. So if you're here today, again, and you're not a Christ follower, just consider where, where do these things come from? Where are these values from? Do they perhaps stand upon something bigger than what the culture says? Perhaps this king that we talk about every single year around Christmas, who lowered himself, who took on human flesh, who abased himself, taking on the likeness of a servant, perhaps the one that went down is the one that actually gets me up, if you will. It's grace and truth tied together in the person of Jesus Christ. I love what Pastor James said last week. Um, You guys can put this on a t-shirt and sell it. You're loosed to do that. It's so good. He said, grace isn't God lowering his standards. Truth isn't God denying his goodness. But at the cross, this will preach, y'all. At the cross, this did preach, Pastor, last week. At the cross, grace freely gave what truth demanded. Yes and amen. Amen. At the cross, we see the king of the kingdom sacrificing himself for his people. Sacrificing himself for you and for me. There is no kingdom without the king. So I urge you, believe upon this king. Believe in his work. And then you'll experience the never-ending kingdom that you long for and that you yearn for. Every week when we gather together, we partake in a meal together called communion. This meal that we take together, it reminds us of the sacrifice that King Jesus made on our behalf. It reminds us, like Pastor James says, that what grace freely gave, it freely gave and answered the demands of truth. 
This meal that we celebrate together is done for you and for me. It's rehearsing and remembering what Christ has done for us. If this is your first time gathering with us in your pew backs, um, you can find individually wrapped communion elements. We'll take these together as the disciples gathered around on Jesus' last day. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. Let's take and eat together. Then at that same meal, Jesus took a cup. After giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And drink the cup. Church, the Apostle Paul tells us that as often as you eat this bread and as often as you drink this cup, you're pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. We're testifying to the work of King Jesus. We're saying that he is the one that we celebrate every single Christmas season and every day of our lives. Every time we gather together, Paul says, you're pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. Let's pray. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.